The following sermon is from New Life Baptist Church, where we exist to see lives transformed by the gospel as we make, mature, and mobilize disciples of Jesus. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at newlifeba.org. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. The Apostle Paul writes this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, in love, in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would come now and that you would, you would do the work that I cannot do, and that you would bring spiritual life to your people through the truth of your word. Father, I pray that this initially difficult doctrine that we're going to talk about this morning. Lord, I pray that that it wouldn't cause us to to shudder or be on the defense, but that it would cause us at the end of this morning to be humbled by and to rejoice in the God who has set his love upon us, not, not because of anything good within us, but because of your own goodness and grace. So Father, I pray that you would come now we, we, we know that, that it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. And so, Holy Spirit, pray that you would come and do that work. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Amen. Well, this morning, I want to begin by asking you a question. And, and I want you to respond by the raising of your hands uh, or not by the raising of your hands, depending on how you want to answer. But, but this morning, I want to ask this question. Who here this morning wants to be blessed by God and have a blessed life? I, I think Don wins the cake. He, he was first. He, he jumped the gun there. So, right. And, and if you didn't raise your hand, I, that, I, that's maybe a bit problematic, right? Because we all want to be blessed in this lifetime. And that word blessed, it's, it's thrown around a lot today, though, isn't it? You hear it a lot after football games when athletes are interviewed and, and they say, well, I'm just blessed. We, we say it in many of our prayers. Uh, I think that's the most recurring word sometimes in some of our prayers. Lord, bless the food, bless the time, bless, uh, uh, bless uh, what, every, everything else. Amen. Right? That, that's, that's how some of our prayers go. And you, and you can't walk through Hobby Lobby without being inundated with this one word, blessed. And, and, and in our society, and if you're on social media, you, you hear and you see the phrases, hashtag blessed. Or too blessed to be stressed or blessed to be a blessing, right? We, we, we have coined and we have turned this word into a, a catch-all sentimental idea. Well, in short, the way the world and oftentimes the way we as Christians as well understand a blessed life is when everything in life seems to be going just right. But what about those seasons of life when things don't go right? What about those times when you receive that diagnosis you never want to hear? When, when you wake up every single morning with chronic pain? When, when your investments go south and your business goes belly up? When, when hostility and strife arises in your relationships? When you're passed over at work or at worst, when you are, if you're demoted or even fired? 
What about when you lose a loved one? What then? Are, are those seasons of life still marked by the blessing of God? What, what does it mean to be blessed by God in this lifetime? Well, well, thankfully, God has answered this question for us in his word. And over the, the course of these next few weeks, as we walk through Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, we will see what the blessed life looks like according to scripture. And in his wisdom, God does indeed to choose to, to choose to materially bless some of his children during this life so that we can be generous with the resources God has given us to advance his kingdom throughout the world. But while God chooses to materially bless some of his children, listen, God has chosen to spiritually bless every single one of his children during this lifetime and for an eternity to come. And he has done so in Christ, our text says. You think about it maybe this way. When, when you turn the, the faucet on at your house, where does that water come from? Well, well, the source of that water comes from the water plant, right? Where they, they filtrate and they, they clean up the water. And then it flows from that water plant through a water main. But, but it's of no value and of no use to you. You can't access that water unless what? Unless you tap into the force main. And so, listen, church, the only way and the only channel, the only pipe, the only way, the only means by which we receive all of God's blessings is in Christ. If you are in Christ, you have access to every single blessing from God in the heavenly places. And if you are not in Christ this morning, you have access to none of his spiritual blessings. You you can turn the faucet on, but, but no water will flow because you're not connected to Christ. You haven't been yet united to Christ by faith. And if that's you this morning, I invite you. Man, Jesus is telling you this morning to come to him and to receive the forgiveness he freely offers you. You can be found in Christ this morning. Well, in this first section of Ephesians in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, the Apostle Paul, if any of you are English teachers or if you enjoy English grammar, you would not enjoy this passage because the Apostle Paul has this, this verses 3 through 14 in the Greek, in the original language. It's one entire run-on sentence. The Apostle Paul, he doesn't pause once, right? He just keeps going. He, he, it's this sense of euphoria within him that he can't, he can't help but just continue to, to share with us the blessings that we have in Christ from God our Father. The Apostle Paul outlines the benefits package, as it were, for every single Christian. Right? When, you, when you start a new job at a new company, in, in that offer letter, what do they outline? They outline the benefits you will receive if you are part of this company. Well, in a sense, that's what the Apostle Paul is doing for us in verses 3 through 14. He is outlining the benefits package we receive when we, have been, when we become part of the family of God. The benefits which include being elected to salvation, adopted into God's family, redeemed from our sin, recipients of God's revealed will, receiving the inheritance of heaven, being indwelt by the Spirit, receiving sanctification, eternal security, and more. Every single one of these blessings is freely available to God's children. So this morning, during our study of verses 3 through 6, we will focus on one of these spiritual blessings, the foundational spiritual blessing from which all the others 
are built upon. And that is the blessing of God's electing love and consequently his adoption of us. So this morning we will see three key truths. First, we'll see the biblical basis for God's electing love. Secondly, we'll see the beautiful effect of God's electing love. And then finally, we'll see the burgeoning fruit from God's electing love. And as a Southern Baptist preacher, right, I had to get the alliteration. So that last point, the burgeoning fruit from God's electing love. What, what is produced within us if we embrace this doctrine? First, let's look at the biblical basis for God's electing love. Paul opens this passage outlining the spiritual blessings and the benefits we receive in Christ with this foundational benefit that we have been chosen, elected, predestined in Christ for salvation. Now, now before we continue, let's define a few words uh, because those are some sticky words, right? The, the word election, it simply means what our text says, that God has first chosen us for salvation and not the other way around. And, and that word predestined, it means that God has predetermined those whom he will save. And so just to prove to you this morning that we're not we're not taking we're not creating a doctrine out of one passage from the Bible, that we're not cherry picking verses to support this doctrine and to show you that this doctrine, it didn't derive from John Calvin or Augustine or anyone else in church history, but instead from Scripture. I want to give you just a sampling of some biblical text this morning that that support and that teach this doctrine. If I were to give you all of them, we'd be here through the afternoon and into the evening. And so I won't do that. Um, but, but, but in Jesus's ministry, when he was teaching on the end times, on the increased tribulation that will take place near the end, Jesus says in Mark 13, chapter 20, and if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved before the sake of the elect whom he has chosen. He shortened the days. And in Matthew 11, verses 25 through 26, we're very well familiar with verse 28, where Jesus says what? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But immediately preceding that verse, Jesus says this. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And in John chapter six, Jesus would say that no one can come to the Father unless no one can come to the Father unless the, uh, no one can come to the Son unless the Father draws him. Forgive me. And then in his epistle, the Apostle Peter writes to the elect exiles throughout the region of North Africa and Asia. In the Apostle John, he wrote his second epistle to who to the elect lady and her children, which is a euphemism for the church and its members. And then. We're well familiar with with Paul's teaching in first Thessalonians four, four. It says, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power. And he begins his letter to Titus by saying, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. And continuing on. 2 Timothy 1, verses 9 through 10, it mirrors much of our passage that God has saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. 
And in Acts 13, when when Paul and Barnabas, they're preaching in Antioch, it it says when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as listen, as many were appointed to eternal life, believed. And then I'll I'll end our time with this in Romans chapter eight, verses twenty nine through thirty. The apostle Paul writes this for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, Jesus may be the firstborn among many brothers. For those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And we don't have time to look at Romans chapter nine this morning, but that entire chapter affirms this doctrine. Now listen, I know that for some of you, maybe even for many of you in this room, especially if you're hearing this doctrine for the first time, it's a difficult one to hear and understand, isn't it? much less accept. But we don't disregard truths and phenomena within the natural realm just because we can't comprehend their complexities. How how many of you could come up here this morning and and speak on the depths of the gravitational theory? Any any takers? Okay, Don, come on up. Come on up, right? No, right? But, But we, even though we can't explain it or fully comprehend it, we accept it as truth because we know it to be true. We're not floating in space right now. We're, we're tied to the ground because of the force of gravity. And, and the same goes for the effect of medicinal chemicals on our molecular biology. We, we may not understand the complexities of molecular biology, but we take medicine when we're sick because we know it helps us and it helps to heal us from our sicknesses. Similarly, the doctrine of election, it is difficult to understand and accept initially. But the criterion, the metric, and the basis for whether we accept this doctrine as true or not shouldn't be, is it easy to understand? But rather, is it biblical? Does the Bible, does God's special revelation of himself and of his works to humanity, does the Bible, the very word of God spoken, for, uh, written for us today, does the Bible teach this doctrine? And if the answer is yes, and and with those sampling of passages, I've tried to show you that the answer is yes. Then our response as Christians and as children of God is simple. it's, It's not easy, but it's simple. And that's to receive this truth on bended knee with humble hearts and open hands. Listen, I I personally struggled through this doctrine for over a six month time span when I was in college. But at the end of the day, I had to ask this question. Am I struggling to believe because this doctrine is unbiblical or am I struggling to believe because it's difficult? And ultimately, I had to submit to the biblical evidence. And ever since that day, when I think now of this great doctrine, I haven't ceased to be amazed at the inconceivable and free grace of God to save a sinner like me and to save a sinner like you. From this doctrine then this morning, I want to show you two implications. There there are plenty more, but for the sake of time, and some of you are saying amen, uh, I, I will only share with you two. First, God's plan of redemption, our salvation, it, it wasn't a reactionary decision on God's part. He, he didn't stop to think about what he should do after Adam and Eve ate that fruit in the garden and sin entered into the world. He, he wasn't the one who first penned the phrase, when life gives you, gives you lemons, make a lemonade, right? He, he, he wasn't the one who said that, or as I like to say, find the sugar in every situation. 
uh, which is always followed by Emily rolling her eyes at me. Uh, but, but God the Father, he didn't ask God the Son and God the Spirit, hmm, what do you think we should do to clean up the mess that Adam and Eve have just created for us? No, if you are in Christ, then before the foundation of the world was set, God set his sights on you. Before the sun ever shone, before the galaxies were ever formed, before the mountains were raised and the valleys were lowered, before the earth and the universe as a whole ever existed, God has set his unchanging, unwavering, unending, and paternal love. Or, as I like to reference, as the Jesus Story uh, Book Bible puts it, God has set his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love upon you and me. So I just want you to take a second and let that truth sink in. That if you really understand it, and if you really believe it, it's enough to leave you speechless, isn't it? That if you are in Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, before God said, let there be, he said, he's mine and she's mine. Which then leads us to our next implication. And that is, if God has chosen us before our own existence and before the foundation of the world, then he has done so according to the purpose of his will and not on the basis of anything good within us. If God's election of us occurred before the foundation of the world, then it cannot be based on the merit of our works, but only on the merit of his free and sovereign grace. Now, now there, there are some who teach today that, that God looked through the corridors of history and he elected those who would choose him. He saw those who would choose him, and so he elected those. But, but there's no, A, there's no biblical evidence for that view, and B, it's, it's a little bit of a circular and illogical argument, for it renders this entire doctrine null and void. Really, at the end of the day, the question is, who has chosen, has God chosen us or have we first chosen him? Who is the one who is ultimately free and unconstrained in his will? God or us? The question is, are we saved because we first chose God or are we saved because he first chose us? Notice what verse four says. Look with me at at the Bible. Maybe you're wondering, let's get to the Bible. Look with me at verse four. That God the Father has chosen us in Christ. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. Listen, he didn't choose us because we were holy. He chose us to make us holy. He didn't choose us because he saw something good within us. He elected us for salvation out of his own goodness and grace. Romans 3 says that that no one is good. No one seeks for God. None is righteous, not even one. Or, or, Or to put it maybe another way. God's election of us wasn't a result of our faith in Christ. It wasn't the result of our faith in Christ. God's election of us was the cause of our faith in Christ. Now, I know maybe one of the common objections is this, that this is not fair. Why would God choose some for salvation and not others? And listen, that, that is a hard question to wrestle with. But, but within that question, I think, lies a little bit of a bias towards some worthiness within us deserving of God's salvation. 
When we see ourselves, though, for who we truly are, that we are sinners in hostile and treasonous and open rebellion against a holy God. Or as Paul would put it later on when we'll get to it, maybe in like uh, nine weeks or ten weeks. Uh, but chapter two, verse one through three, Paul describes us as sons of disobedience and as children of wrath. When we see ourselves for who we truly are, then really the only appropriate question we can ask is not why would God choose some or others, but instead, why would God choose to save any of us at all? Why, why would he set his sights, his love upon his rebellious enemies? And the biblical question to that answer is that he did so to the praise of his glorious grace, that we would glorify him for his glorious grace that he has shown toward us. And another objection to this doctrine is that maybe it violates our free will as humans. And again, I think this objection, it fails maybe to consider the reality of our own depravity. The question isn't whether we are free as humans. To deny free will is to deny human nature, right? We have our own volition. We're able to choose as we wish. But the problem is, because we are sinners and because sin has corrupted our hearts, a hundred times out of a hundred, if we had a choice between our sin and God, we would choose our sin every single time. And so the reason we begin to seek after God in our lives, it's because the Holy Spirit has first begun to free our wills from the bondage of sin's captivity. And he has begun to awaken within us a desire for Jesus Christ, such that we are now enabled to freely seek after him. Or as the Apostle John would put it, we love because he first loved us. And then at the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit bursts within us new spiritual life so that we see our sin for what it is. And we also see Christ for who he is. And as a result of seeing those two things, we repent of our sin and we cling to Jesus as our Savior. Charles Spurgeon, the the great preacher from the 19th century and one of my spiritual heroes, uh, he once wrote about his own experience of how he came to embrace this truth of God's electing love. And he writes this. One week night, while I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon, which I hope is never said of you. Uh, But he said, I was not thinking much of the preacher's sermon, for I did not believe it. The thought struck me. How did you come to be a Christian? Well, I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? And the truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind that induced me to seek God. I I prayed, I thought, but then I asked myself, how did I come to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. Well, how then did I come to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then in a moment, Spurgeon says, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me. And from that doctrine, I have not departed to this day. And I desire to make this constant, this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. My my, my prayer for you this morning has been that not only will you accept the biblical basis for God's uh, electing love, but even more that you would be humbled by and that you would Be astounded by this truth that if you are in Christ, then from eternity past, 
the holy God of the universe has set his love upon you. Not because you are great, but because of his own glorious grace. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us. But this then leads us to the next phrase in this passage leads us to the second point. And that is the beautiful effect of God's electing love. Why did God predestine us? For what purpose? Look with me at verse five. What does Paul say? In love, he predestined us for, and that's a purpose clause, right? When you read your Bibles, anytime you see the word that or for, you can think purpose, right? Paul is leading to purpose. This is for the purpose of this. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. The purpose of God's election of us was to bring us into his family and to make us sons and daughters of the king. God didn't elect us for us to be his servants or his slaves. He's not some authoritarian tyrant on the throne, coercing people and beating them into submission until they will choose him, until they tap out, relent, and follow him. No, the purpose of his electing love was to adopt us into his family and to bestow upon us the full rights, privileges, and responsibility of being sons and daughters of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In his book, Knowing God, which I, if you haven't read it, I recommend it to you. In his book, J.I. Packer, he says that our adoption into the family of God is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. He goes on to say that in adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship and he establishes us as his children and his heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of this relationship. And so to be right with God, to be justified is a great thing, but to be loved by God and to be cared for him as our father, that's even greater. With this analogy of adoption, Paul, he's playing off of the Roman, uh, the Roman adoption law of that day. And the pr- profound truth of Roman adoption, contrary to the, all the other ex- uh, existing legal systems that preceded it, including the Jewish legal system, the, the profound truth of the, of the Roman adoption was that the adoptee was taken out of his previous state and placed into a new relationship of son to his new father. And, and, all, and, and when a, a, a child was adopted in the Roman legal system, all his debts were canceled. And, if, and in effect, the adoptee started a new life as part of this new family. Now, I, I hope you are, if you're paying attention to our text, and, and if you are a, a lady in this room, you might be thinking, well, Paul said that God predestined us for adoption as sons, N- not, not as adoption as sons and daughters. And so was Paul being, was he maybe being chauvinistic here? Was he disregarding his female audience? Well, not at all. Because you see in Roman law, daughters did not have the same privileges that sons did. And so if Paul used the language of sons and daughters here, it would have weakened what he was trying to convey about the reality that we have and the status and the privilege and the rights and the security that we have now as children of God. And so Paul wasn't, he's not being chauvinistic. Instead, he's elevating the status of women here by saying, you have the full rights, privileges, statuses, and responsibilities as anyone else in the kingdom of God, because you are also an adopted child of God. 
in the gospel, the social labels that create cultural hierarchies, they have been removed and abolished. Every single Christian has been adopted and elevated to the status of sonship. But, but, but notice what our text says. How did God adopt us? Well, look with me. How did he do that? It says he did it through Jesus Christ. Well, as many of you have probably heard, um, the, the cost of adoption today is incredibly expensive. Emily and I, we, we, we have uh, dreamed and considered and, and prayed at different seasons of our marriage of adopting, and that's still on our horizon uh, at some point, Lord willing. Uh, but, but as we have researched it, we have kind of gotten some sticker shock at the price of adoptions. And so according to the, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the average cost for a domestic adoption, it ranges from $20,000 all the way up to $45,000. And the cost for an international adoption can go as high as $66,000, depending on the country you're adopting the child from. That's a lot of money, isn't it? But while the cost of a modern-day adoption is astronomically high, it pales, listen, church, it pales in comparison to how much it cost to adopt you and me into the family of God. You see, First Peter 1, chapter 8, verse 18, it says that we were ransomed, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but that we were ransomed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The cost of our adoption was nothing less than the death of the Son of God on the cross. And you wonder, does God love you? Just look to the cross and see what he was willing to pay for your adoption into his family. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came in this world to save sinners from our punishment of death by dying on the cross in our place. And he did so, not, not only to provide pardon for our sin, he does that, but he did so to pay the price for your adoption into the family of God. Because on the cross, Jesus, he takes your sin away, he removes your sin record, and he gives you his record of righteousness. He, he takes your tattered clothes of sin and he clothes you with the robe of his perfect righteousness. Or maybe to put it another way, he takes your debt and he gives you his credit. And so now, since we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, and since the image of God has now been restored within us, since we now bear the family resemblance, the price has been paid and the requirements have been met for us to be, now be adopted sons of God. In God's electing love and by his free and unmerited grace and by the price that jesus paid for us through his death on the cross we have been made blood-bought sons of the living god we have been predestined for adoption now now though we have received many privileges as adopted sons and daughters of God for for time's sake I'll just share one of these privileges with you this morning and that is this because we are adopted children of the living God we now have unfettered access to boldly approach the throne of grace 
I shared this illustration with you maybe about eight or nine months ago, but A, I think it's a good story. B, I think it's applicable. And C, I bet you've probably forgotten about it. So uh, I'm going to share it with you again. Well, during the Civil War, there was a young soldier in the Union Army, and he had lost his brother and father in the ba- at the Battle of Gettysburg. As the only surviving male member of his family, he decided that he needed to go to Washington, D.C. to speak with President Abraham Lincoln so that he could receive an exemption from the war so he could go back home and take care of his mother and his sister. He, he received this furlough to go and to plead his case before President Lincoln. But as he went to the White House, he, he kept being turned away at the gate. And so the young soldier, he, he goes and he sits on a bench and he, he's very disheartened. And while he's sitting on this bench, a young child approaches him and he says, soldier, you look unhappy. What's wrong? And, and, and so the soldier looks at this boy and shares with him the predicament of his situation. And the little boy listened to him. And after the soldier shared his case, he said, I can help you, soldier. He took the boy by the hand. He led him back to the front gate of the White House. And they walked past the guard straight to the front door of the White House. And this whole time, the, the, the soldier, he couldn't understand this. He's saying, why doesn't anyone try to stop us right now? Well, they reached the doors of the Oval Office where the president was working. He, Abraham Lincoln and the Secretary of State looking over battle plans. And the president looked at this boy. And then he looked at the soldier. And he said, Good afternoon, Todd. Can you introduce me to your friend? And then the boy looked at the president and, and he said, what? He said, Daddy, this soldier needs to see you right now. Well, the soldier then, he began to plead his case before President Lincoln. And then and right then and there, this soldier received the exemption that he so desired. Listen, brothers and sisters, we have been given unfettered access, not to the president of the United States, but even more to the sovereign God who upholds and sustains the universe in the palm of his hands. We have been adopted as his blood-bought sons and daughters. Finally, this morning, we see the burgeoning fruits of God's electing love. Now, now we get into the so what part of our time this morning. But remember what I said last week, right? That our gospel thinking, what does it do? What does it do? If anybody remembers, what does our gospel thinking help us to do? It shapes our gospel doing. And so as we consider and as we receive and as we hold to these doctrines, it will invariably and inevitably shape how we live. And so this morning, I want to briefly share with you four fruits. I had five. I cut it down one. So, so four fruits that should begin to bud and increase in our lives as we embrace this truth of God's electing love. And, that, and the first one is this, the fruit of hallowing. Hallowing. You, you, you notice that what's the first petition in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father in heaven, what? Hallowed be your name. And that word hallowed, it, it, it's this idea of, of worship and, and treasuring and adoring the name and the worth and the character of God. And so this, the goal of this doctrine is to, meant to help us elevate our view of God and to see him for who he is. And as a result, seeing him in his greatness and his grace, that our hearts are enraptured in worship of him 
to the praise of his glorious grace. Nothing shapes our lives and our beings like worship does. And at every moment of every day, we are worshiping something. And so the greatest catalyst for spiritual growth in our lives is seeing and savoring the God of all grace and responding in proper worship and adoration of him. The first fruit of this doctrine is howling. It creates, it evokes worship within us to our, this God of grace. Secondly, the second fruit is humility. And, and not to wear uh, him out, but to quote Spurgeon once again. I, I tried it and I couldn't top it. And uh, you're probably saying amen. But, uh, but he said this. He said, election to a saint is one of the most stripping doctrines in all the world. To take away all trust in the flesh or, or all reliance upon anything except Jesus Christ. Pause, my soul, and consider this. God loved you before you had a being. He loved you when you were dead in trespasses and sins, and he sent his son to die for you. He purchased you with his precious blood before you could even say his name. Can you then be proud? I, I remember when I was in Istanbul, Turkey, and, and we were, I was going through and sharing the gospel and having gospel conversations with people and, and, and I went to this coffee shop, I went to a Starbucks in Istanbul. And, and there I had about an hour and a half to two hour conversation with this man about the gospel. We went back and forth, but it was evident all throughout that his heart was hardened to the truth. And, and, and I remember it vividly that I walked away in tears because of the reality and asking this question, God, why, why? Would you have opened my eyes to the truth? Why have you saved me? Nothing good in me. Nothing different from this man. Save the electing and sovereign grace of God. The Apostle Paul said, But by the grace of God, what? I am what I am. This doctrine of election, it leads us to humility because we realize we are not greater, we are not more superior than anyone else. If there is any good within us, it is all due to God's grace in us. Thirdly, it leads us to holiness. Note note again with me, verse 4, that God chose us in Christ that, again, purpose statement, that we should be holy and blameless before him. This doctrine should never make us lax or lazy in our pursuit of holiness. Or lead us to falsely think that because I am one of the elect and because I am eternally kept, I can live however I want. No, listen, brothers and sisters, the very purpose for our election is that we would be made holy and blameless before him. Peter told his readers in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, he says this, Therefore, brothers, be all the diligent to confirm your calling and election and to do this through the pursuit and the progress of holy and obedient and virtuous living in our lives. Hebrews 12 tells us that there is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And so I just want to ask, shall we sin against the one who has freely chosen us by his grace? This doctrine, it's meant to lead us, to propel us to greater holiness, not to excuse us in our sin. And then finally, I'll close with this. The doctrine of election, it will produce within us a hunger, the final fruit, hunger 
a hunger to see people from every people group in our world worship and treasure Jesus Christ. So following the heels of Romans chapter 9, and we don't have time to read it, but, but following this chapter which Paul lays out this doctrine, Paul then in, verse, in chapter 10 verse 1, he says this, Brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is that they may be saved. And so when we embrace this truth, and an objection to this truth is that, that if we believe this, then, then it inhibits evangelism. But the contrary is true. When we embrace the truth that God has predestined a multitude from every tribe, tongue, language, and people, then it emboldens us and it fuels us to go to the most difficult and dangerous to reach places in the world. The places that seem most unlikely for gospel advance. Because we know, in the words of David Platt, that some of them are coming out. We can go anywhere. And it may take years. It may, we may not see it in our lifetime, but we know our efforts and our, our faithful uh, service is not wasted. Because God has chosen, he has predestined a multitude, Revelation 7 tells us, from every tribe, tongue, language, and people. But it also, not only in the world, it also fuels our efforts in our own neighborhood. In Acts 18, after Paul had experienced opposition in sharing the gospel, it says in verse 9 that the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. Listen, for I, because no one's going to attack you, Paul. No one's going to harm you. No one's going to inhibit your ministry, because listen, Jesus said this, I have many in this city who are my people. When we embrace this truth, it emboldens us to endure in the face of opposition. And it encourages us to remain faithful despite initial success. Because we know that though it may take years for our church to reach our neighborhood with the gospel, that Jesus, he still has many in this neighborhood who are his. He has many of his people in this neighborhood. So we continue to go. We continue to share. And we continue to love our neighbors because we know that some are coming out. So church, may we not grow weary in doing good. May we, may we remain steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain because our electing God is still mighty to save today. So we will end our time. We'll, we'll be entering into a time of reflection. And, and Mike, I would just ask that you start coming up here and we will, we will have a time of reflection of song. And so if you would, just bow your head and close your eyes right now. And, and there may be some of you this morning asking this question. How do I know if I am among the elect? And I want to answer your question with a question. Do you desire God? Do you desire to know Christ? Do you desire to walk in holiness? I'm not asking, are you holy or are you perfectly righteous? None of us are. But rather, do you desire the things of God? Do you seek after him? If that answer is yes, then according to scripture, you are among the elect because God has done that work within you. Those who seek, Jesus said what? will find. Again, referencing Matthew 11, after Jesus praises his father for his electing love and prayer, what does Jesus say to the crowds before him? Does he say only those certain that they are among the elect may come to me? Is that what Jesus says? No. What does he say in Matthew eleven twenty eight? 28? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. To all, to every single one of us in this room, 
Jesus says, come. And then John 6, another, after he teaches again on God's election, Jesus said, this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And so if, if you're asking that question, if you, don't, if you have some insecurity or lack of assurance, I just want to encourage you, come to Jesus today. For he has said all that all who come to him, he will never cast away. We are great sinners deserving of God's just punishment. But listen, Jesus is a greater savior. And he has come to accomplish the work that God the Father began before the foundation of the world by dying on the cross in our place so that we would be adopted as sons of the living God. And so church, may we trust him for our salvation and may we praise him for his glorious grace. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you have any questions or if we can serve you in any way, please connect with us at newlifeba.org.